This is Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, a podcast and radio program presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. Most any contemporary musical style can trace its roots back to the blues. Time Signatures explores the blues and its musical connections with captivating interviews, lively discussions, and news from the world of the blues. And now, here he is, your host, Jim Irvin. Yes, yes, I am home. Thank you so much, Parker. Appreciate that. And welcome to Time Signatures. My next guest on the show today got his first taste of the blues in the early 90s in the muddy potato fields of Idaho. His buddy Tom Moore introduced him to the Junior Wells and Buddy Guy classic, Hoodoo Man Blues. Following that moment, he and his friend formed a band which is still regarded as legendary in the Boise region known as Fat John and the Three Slims. It wasn't long before our guest began began recording and releasing his own music, and the rest, as they say, is history. History, I might add, that we will discuss in length. John Namath, welcome to Time Signatures. Good to be on the show, man. Thanks for having me. We are really glad to have you, and you know, there's so many layers to this onion that the best way to start is just to, we're going to begin on the outside and kind of work our way in. Is that fair enough? Yeah, man. Okay, great. Now, I would love to hear the story of how your friend Tom let you hear Hoodoo Man Blues that very first time. Uh, talk about that, because prior to that moment, you were actually more interested in the hip-hop and rock scene, weren't you? Yeah, yeah, I was. Um, he was taking some lessons from a guitar player in town. And uh, the guitar player gave him this uh, record. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was on a mixtape, actually, it was, or just a, not a mixtape, but a, a bootleg cassette tape. Okay, a little compilation-like? And, no, I'm sorry, it wasn't a compilation. It was it was the whole album of Hoodoo Man Blues. Gotcha. Yeah, and I I I, I took it back home, and and uh, I used to listen to music in the basement. Uh, of the house because my uh, my dad really hated rock and roll and blues and <laughs> jazz. I mean, with a passion. Okay. And so I, I'd listen to it in the basement. So I remember like taking that record downstairs and putting it on the headphones, having a swig of moonshine. <laughs> and uh, because I had a spill in, in, in my house growing up. Oh, wow. That's my kind of family. Right, right. Uh, and, and I had a spill in the basement of the house. So I had a swig of moonshine and, and put that record on. And, oh, man, it just resonated with me. I don't know. Everything about the album just captivated me. I was trying to figure out, you know, what are these songs about? Mm-hmm snatch it back and hold it baby one more time i ain't doing too bad baby i got you on my mind you know that that was the first song on the record was snatch it back and hold it Mm -hmm. what in the world is he talking about great imagery of tunes the next song was like a ships on the ocean a song about you know a love that feels like it's lost at sea and hoodoo man blues somebody done tried to hoodoo the hoodoo man 
that was a wild tune to think about, you know, the the hoodoo man getting hoodooed. Oh yeah. And Chitlin's Con Carney was on there. And uh Junior Wells harmonica playing. I mean, man, he was one of the baddest dudes that ever lived and rarely copied because he's just he's just too damn cool. It's really hard to cop his cool. He's that cool. And he played Chitlin's Con Carney on that album, and and that really blew my mind. He's also playing harmonica with like just his, his rhythm and his groove was just so soulful and mm-hmm. captivating. And it was a small band. It was guitar, which the guitar player was Buddy Guy, and then this bass player named Jack Myers. Uh, on the album that guy's a very progressive blues bass player so the music was very progressive and the drummer was like the drummer was like a like a jazz player that w- could play with like ray charles is is great okay. at like boogaloo and things like that yep. funky there's a song on there good morning little schoolgirl." of course man i'm i'm like i'm like 15 years old you know, hearing this stuff, you know, I'm like, ah, good morning. <laughs> oh yeah, man. You know? Right. Uh, so there's all these tunes uh, that really resonated with me. And I, uh, I, I didn't play harmonica at that time. I was, uh, but I, I loved harmonica and I loved Junior Wells singing. Cause he reminded me a lot of one of my favorite singers, Louis Armstrong. Oh Yeah. I really bonded with him and 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 got into the mood of the album and the uh, the freedom in the music. It just sounded like these guys were getting together in the middle of the night, drinking moonshine or some kind of liquor and making a record. And come to find out, that's exactly what they were doing. <laughs> I guess that record was recorded in the middle of the night in Chicago. They'd already done a gig. They went to the studio and they cut the album. So they had already been feeling good. They already had some sure. drinks and they were already warmed up, ready to go. And they cut it like a jazz record. They cut it live and they they cut it all in the, you know, in in in, in a night. And that's the album. Now that begs the question: How do you know that story? Did you talk to Buddy Guy about it, or where did you hear the information? I can't remember who told me all this information, Okay, but I, I do know Buddy, and I do know Bob Kester from Delmark, God rest his soul, mm-hmm. and uh, and I do know Elvin Bishop, who used to work with uh, Junior Wells, and, I, and I've talked about that album with many different people, so I don't know who, who gave me that information, but uh, yeah, that, that's what I heard. Just kind of cool to know the backstory that... Well, John, I, I would have to turn back just a little bit here and step back to a little more of the beginning. Talk about your earliest musical influence. Who are they? Who were they? And how did they help you shaping your musical journey as you grew? My parents and my brother and sister, really, and my godmother. My godmother, she would come over to the house every day. She was my mom's best friend. She was a concert pianist that, uh, man, she got stage fright. Oh, wow. And uh, she graduated from Sherwood Music School, 
in Chicago uh, with a degree as a concert pianist. And she got her show all ready to go. And she was ready to go out and, and travel and perform. And she got stage fright and she couldn't do it. Wow. But like, get this, like once a year, when my mom had like decided to invite too many people over to her house for dinner, like mm-hmm. on a holiday, my mom was freaking out, trying to get the place clean, get all the food cooked. Um, my godmother would help her out, you know, to get everything ready. She would get behind the piano and at the house and she would perform a concert. Wow. And so she'd play for a couple hours straight and her emotional sense and attachment to the melody was greatness. And so once a year, you know, from the time I was a baby till, uh, till I was probably 18 years old, I would get a show once a year from her. And that, it, that blew my mind. And I, man, she, the way she, and she would, it's like out of nowhere, not even reading music, yeah, just sit down at the piano and take off. Absolutely. Uh, it's so cool to hear that story. Yeah. So it was my godmother. And then um, my mom used to love all the crooners. Okay. She listened to the crooners. Um, she was a big Doris Day fan, a fan of Bing Crosby. And so uh, those were, those were her two, two big favorites. And she had watched the Lawrence Welk show. <laughs> I'd watch that, you know, so I'd get into, uh, the joy and happiness and champagne bubbles of that. Oh yeah. Then there was my father who he listened to Hungarian music. Oh my. Traditional Hungarian music. And uh, that music has been ripped off probably more than any other music in the world. Melodies, famous melodies have been taken from that music and it's very harmonically jazz forward. So he didn't like American jazz music or blues, but what he liked was European, like Hungarian jazz, basically. So he would listen to that, and every morning he'd wake up and he'd put that music on. And some of the stuff is breakneck speed, like like Charlie Parker kind of stuff. Okay. And he would put that music on. He'd do his calisthenics every morning. Wow. Uh, for minutes to that music so every morning i'd get a dose of that like at 6 30 in the morning seeping into my brain through osmosis so you had a really and, really uh wide variety of music that you were impacted by growing up yes yeah oh absolutely and then my brother he loved he loved like outlaw country music and and 70s rock he was 14 years older than me, and so he was in high school in the 70s when I was born. So he listened to, like, Johnny Paycheck and Waylon Jennings sure. and Aerosmith and the Rolling Stones and all that. And then my sister, she liked all the Broadway music and, like, Broadway rock, like, you know, like Grease, you know, Livia Newton-John, sure. ABBA. So... Yeah, I got I got everything from everywhere. It was cool, and and it definitely changed me and made me a big music fan. 
You are listening to Time Signatures with Jim Irvin. I am uh, pleased to have John Namath here in the, well, not in the studio with me, but he's he's here with me, uh, being recorded at uh, at my home out here in Mason, Michigan. Why? Because I can record just about anywhere I want, which is kind of fun. But uh, we have got a lot to get to here. John, you released Jack of Harps in 2002. You actually uh, had Come and Get It in 2004, featuring Junior Watson. And uh, you then took off for Fr- uh, San Francisco, where you connected with Anson Funderburg and the Rockets. And I'd like you to talk about that period of your young career and how did the stint in California influence your music as you grew? It was really great moving to California because there were so many musicians dedicated to the art of performing blues. Mm-hmm. And so when I moved down there, I was working with so many different artists. Uh, there were all these guitar players that needed singers. So I worked with Kid Anderson. I worked with uh, Mighty Mike Shermer. I worked with uh, Anthony Paul, Kenny Blu-ray, and uh, Elvin Bishop. Mm -hmm. And I was working with these cats. And the word about me was just, I guess, taken off around the country. I I, uh, I was not really aware of who was, you know, familiar with me or not. And um, I got a call from Anson Thunderbird to uh, fill in for Sam Myers, okay, Mississippi uh, legendary blues man that fronted the band. I jumped at that opportunity, so I I uh, went to uh, Dallas, Texas, and learned all of Sam's tunes, about 30 of the songs. Wow. Got together with the band, and uh, we went down through the South and toured. Some of the greatest gigs I've ever done were those gigs, especially the one at the Delta Blues Festival in Greenville, Mississippi, was just great. I mean, the audience, you know, blues is their religion, blues is their language. The um, crowd interaction with the music, every line I would say would get a reaction out of the audience. So it was really great. I'll never forget it change the way I sang the blues. You know, I have to ask you, because you and I spoke about this before we began recording this evening, the the blues in the United States versus the blues across the pond in, in Europe is a totally different animal, isn't it? Um, I would say over in Europe, there's uh, probably a lot more respect for the music mm-hmm. because uh, it's not native to the area. And uh, it's it's really cool, you know. Uh, the the gig opportunities are are fantastic over there, and and the uh, the crowds are a lot bigger for the mm. shows than here in the U.S. But the U.S. has been very good to me, maybe better than a lot of other artists. And um, I think part of that is because I'm a singer and a songwriter, right? And I'm someone that, you know, communicates the music and I'm keeping it fresh. So here in the States, people, you know, I I do well in the States too. But I think for a lot of the uh, older artists performing, a lot of the older blues, they do well over there in Europe. Mm -hmm. 
in Europe just loves just guitar rock blues, man. They just eat that up like it's going out of business, man. They just they just love it. They probably love that more than the songwriting itself. Well, you know, I, I was sitting here looking at my notes because um, it's been said that you have the uncanny ability to skillfully blend retro and modern blues and soul into compelling music that is simultaneously old and new. And just listening to you share the stories about your blues journey really bears that out. I think that um, that it's it's kind of cool because there are people who are blues purists who just want the old traditional blues and then there's the people that like to do the fusion with the soul and, and different things, a little funk, a little rock, different things like that. Where do you fall on that spectrum? I love to interpret black music. Uh, so I draw from so much of the blues of all the decades. I love soul music. Right. Uh, Percy Sledge and uh, and a blues singer named Magic Sam were actually my introduction to singing soul music. Okay. And I think, you know, combining those styles makes me more palatable to a a, a bigger audience. Although I would I would love to try to do just a real just straight up blues show. I don't, I don't know if it would sell the tickets. Uh, even Buddy Guy, you know, I mean, he's doing Jimi Hendrix and John Hyatt. And, <laughs> yes, he is. And everything under the sun, you know. And the moment he started doing all that music was the moment that he became the guy that's making a hundred thousand dollars a show. Yeah. So. Um, I think, you know, as time moves on, musical tastes, you know, start to differ. And especially since there's there's really no blues on the radio, uh, especially commercial radio, you have to familiarize yourself as an artist with, uh, with the, uh, the needs and desires of the audiences. Yeah, and I think a lot of the artists today are, they're becoming better attuned at reading the audience. And I, th I think that's why we're seeing a lot more of that, that fusion. Uh, Joe Bonamassa comes to, to mind. Even, even the younger artists like uh, uh, Toby Lee, who's coming up. He's 18 years old, and he, he does some incredible blues stuff. And then uh, Matthias Latine, who just won the IBC uh, this year down in Memphis. I mean, it, it seems like there's, there's definitely some growth. There's some... Um, it's reemergence, I guess, of blues with some various twists to it. Would you agree? Yeah, absolutely. I think there's, uh, I think there's a lot of new talent in the blues. There was very, very, very few people into blues when I was getting into it. I mean, trying to find other musicians that played blues in the uh, in the '90s was uh, was pretty rare. Mm -hmm. Stevie Ray Vaughan being so popular. Yep. There were a lot of kids that tried to emulate Stevie Ray Vaughan, but there weren't a bunch of drummers or bass players, piano players, or people playing the, the other instruments. I think with YouTube and streaming um, has really opened the door for a lot of young talent to discover 
new music. And of course, and then they incorporate the music that they that they were raised in. Sure. And some kids are raised in blues, modern blues these days. Like here in Memphis, we have a station, a blues station here, WDIA, which has been around ever since BB King was just a, was a little tiny tot, and uh, they're still playing blues. Um, we had the Tri-State Blues Festival. A week ago down here and I, I i was performing somewhere else and that's a huge blues festival there's probably five or six thousand people at the venue and uh the modern blues music has a lot more soul in it than the uh the, the soul genre in it um but yeah there's there's talent everywhere they're coming up through the ranks I just wish there was more avenues for success for those guys. You know, a lot of those guys like Matthias Lapine and sure. those guys, you know, they don't have the they don't have the money like Joe Matamasa has to make themselves a star. That's fact. Um, yep. But guys like Gary Clark, you know, that's a really talented cat who uh you know, that came up through Austin and the great Austin uh, uh music scene there. And he's done really great with his music. He might be, uh, although maybe not, maybe the boomer audience doesn't like to consider him a blues artist, but I would <laughs> consider him probably the biggest next to Buddy Guy. Well, John, it has been an honor. I think I'm going to have you hang around for another take on this. Um, but real quick, do me a favor and let us know where we can find more information on you. Where can we get your music and your goodies and, and book you for a show? Well, you can go to johnnamath.com and uh, J-O-H-N-N-E-M-E-T-H dot C-O-M. And if you want to book me, you can find information there to uh, contact my booking agent and my publicist and everybody like that and uh, get whatever you need. Sounds good. John, we want to thank you very much for being on Time Signatures. That's going to wrap it up for this edition. We want to thank everybody for tuning in and helping us keep the blues alive. We will see you on the next round. This has been Time Signatures with Jim Irvin, presented by the Capital Area Blues Society in Lansing, Michigan. For more information on cabs, visit capitalareablues.org. You can find this episode and past episodes at lccconnect.org. The Time Signatures theme song, Michigan Roads, is used by permission and was written by Root Doctor, featuring Freddie Cunningham. Until next time, keep on keeping the blues alive. Baby, I'm keep connected with LCC Connect at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Coming in October to the Black Box Theater, Lansing Community College presents Isaac's Eye by Lucas Nath. This play tells the story of a young Isaac Newton exploring his dreams and longings and what drove this rural farm boy to become one of the greatest thinkers in modern science. Performances October 6th through the 14th. For more information, visit lcc.edu slash show info. My dentist said I had to see an oral and maxillofacial surgeon. 
because my wisdom teeth were impacted. I got them out and had an uneventful recovery. The pain was becoming unbearable. I didn't know that the roots of wisdom teeth can lengthen and become entangled around the nerves in the lower jaw. My surgery was more complicated and I had to reschedule my family vacation. One of my wisdom teeth never came all the way in. In my 30s, it started to hurt a lot. It was infected. My recovery took a week. I had a cyst around my impacted wisdom tooth. I was referred to an OMS to have it removed. I was so worried. I wish I would have taken care of this when I was younger. Some things get better with age. Your wisdom teeth are not one of them. Make an appointment with an oral and maxillofacial surgeon today to evaluate your wisdom teeth. When caring for your wisdom teeth, pain-free does not necessarily mean disease-free. Visit myoms.org to find an OMS near you. Lansing Community College's Fresh Start program forgives outstanding student balances, allowing students to re-enroll without penalty. Fresh Start does not apply to student loan creditors. Learn more at lcc.edu slash fresh start. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. Welcome to Community Convos, a podcast and radio program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in Lansing and around mid-Michigan. Once again, back on the combo, this is Dedelian, and with me in the studio is Liz Baker. Welcome to the show, Liz. Hi, thank you for having me. Now, you are the co-chair of the Lansing Out of Darkness Walk, is that correct? Yes, the Lansing Out of the Darkness Walk. Uh-huh. And tell me a little bit about this. What is it? So it's a suicide prevention walk that we hold every year. Um, they're actually held nationally across the country, and we okay. have 11 happening in Michigan. Um, so I'm one of 11 walks happening across the state where we are working to uh, raise funds to bring hope to those affected by suicide. Mm-hmm. Through that fundraising, we're able to bring our resources, our training, education programs, and things like that to the community at no cost. Very good. You said 11 in Michigan. So do these all take place at the same time, the same day? Nope. Actually, they take place throughout the month of September. Um, September is Suicide Prevention Month. So actually last weekend, uh, we kicked off our walk season in Michigan with our Oakland, Rochester, Macomb and Kalamazoo walks. Okay. So you're involved in uh, all 11 though. Yes. Yep. I serve on our Michigan State uh, chapter um, as the chapter secretary, as well as chairing the Lansing Walk. So it's a lot of us are in that realm as well who are on the chapter board. We have our hands in a lot of different things. Um, Mm -hmm. So we just it's it's one big team and we we help out and it's it's an all hands on deck kind of operation. Yeah, definitely with uh, nonprofits, I find that anybody involved in a nonprofit has usually got their hands in some sort of uh, like different areas. We like to say that we all wear a lot of different hats. Very good. Very good. So why exactly do you do this? So um, I got started about 10 years ago. I um, experienced a suicide loss. Mm-hmm. I was only 17 years old. I'm sorry. Thank you. Um, and it, it, I mean, it rocked my whole world. Yeah. It changed the it entire does. trajectory of my life um, mm-hmm. to the point where a few months after he passed, um, I, came across, I came across an out of the darkness walk in Lansing and I, you know, it was a little too early for me, but other people wanted to go and, you know, all right, fine, then, then we'll go. And, um, in the middle of that walk, I I found myself absolutely losing it. There was a couple hundred people there. Um, and all of a sudden I felt a hand on my back and it was, um, one of my teachers from elementary school. Oh, wow. And in that moment I knew, first of all, suicide doesn't discriminate. Mental health conditions don't discriminate that they Mm -hmm. touch anybody and everybody. Um, 
and having that validation. I mean, especially just being that 17 years old, not knowing I had just graduated high school. I didn't know what I was doing with my life and, and those types of things. And that type of huge loss, um, completely changed things for me. So I would imagine so. Yes. When I, uh, when I got involved, um, the following year, I was, I was a little, I like to say a little volunteer, you know, started at ground zero kind of a thing. Um, and, and 10 years later have bloomed into, um, a crisis worker and, um, you know, that this is my life. This is what I do. Um, not only in volunteering, but in, in my professional life as well. I was actually going to ask you that because it did sound like, uh, you know, based based on what you're talking about, it sounds like you're involved in everything. So it sounds like it's a part of uh, your your life, which, you know, it, and I, I never know how to phrase it, but I always feel like if something good comes out of a tragedy, there is at least that. Yeah. I'm glad you're a part of it and I'm glad you're doing what you're doing. Thank you. Um, so... Like when you're raising these funds, what, what are the funds utilized for? Is it utilized for resources to help folks like you who, yeah. have, who have experienced loss? And So we have four different areas that we focus those funds in, and that is um, education and prevention. So um, looking at how we can best prevent um, a, a suicide crisis, what goes into that, mm-hmm. um, and then looking at advocacy on both a state and national level. We have uh, meetings with legislatures where we are lobbying for mental health bills, funding for 988, and those types of things. Um, and then we also focus in, um, like we said, resources and literature, mm-hmm. things like that to give out to people, but also having a specific area um, where we have resources and programs for suicide loss survivors, specific resources and things like that specifically for sure. those who've experienced a loss. Very good. And so it sounds like it's being put to a good use. Now, the walk itself is going to be the 24th of uh, uh, September. Mm -hmm. Not everybody might be able to make it. So how can somebody else support the cause, get involved, be a part of it? So we are, uh, as a chapter, we're having events all over the place all of the time. We're Mm -hmm. we're constantly moving. Um, If you're not able to make it to the Lansing Walk, maybe you can make it to one of the other walks that might be in the area. So I would definitely recommend checking out AFSP dot mm-hmm. org slash okay. Michigan. Okay. Um, and that'll take you to our chapter website where you can see and keep up with all of the stuff that we're doing in the state. In November, we have what's called International Survivors of Suicide Loss Day. Mm-hmm. Um, that's a Saturday before Thanksgiving every year where internationally people gather to remember those we've lost to suicide, to pay respects, but to also honor their own journeys. We know that, you know, when somebody experiences a loss like that, it's a, it's a, it, like we said, it, it changes everything. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so honoring that within yourself is so I feel that that is so important because you're you're figuring out who you are as a new person on that other side of this huge loss. Mm-hmm. That completely makes sense. What about sponsorships? Do you take in sponsorships? Yeah. So we are recruiting sponsors um, and that helps us, like I said, continue to bring those resources and things like that. We have six sponsors currently. But if that is something that people would be interested in helping out with, um, we will always hop on board with more sponsors. Very good. And what about uh, what what if somebody just wanted to help raise funds, offer a donation or anything? Yeah, like so that? We, we do accept donations. Um, there's a few different ways that you can do that. Uh, we're having a silent auction at our walk. So if anybody were interested in, you know, maybe donating a, a basket or something to the silent auction, um, as well as we have a DJ who donates his services every year. Shout out to Hot Beats Entertainment. Sure. Um, DJ Rod has been with us for quite a while um, and he, he takes care of us very well. So not only do we have those types of um, in-kind type donations, you can register for the walk 
at AFSP.org slash Lansing. Okay. Um, and then when you register, it will create an online profile for you. So you can share that throughout your socials. You can send out email forms and things like that. Um, and then people can just donate right online. Okay. Okay. Very good. And, and as I mentioned before, it's on the 24th of September. That is uh, Sunday, I believe. Yes. Yeah. What time does that get started and underway? Uh, our registration is going to open at 11 a.m. Uh, we recommend that people get there right around then. We'll have lots of different community resources and activities. And then the walk itself will kick off um, at 1 p.m. And how long is the walk? It clocks in at just under three miles. Um, basically, we're starting at Adato Riverfront Park and then uh, making a big loop back down to the Capitol and then to the park again. Very good. You already mentioned the uh, website. That is AFSP.org slash Lansing. And if they wanted to find you on Facebook, where would they find you there? Uh, they would just search the Lansing Out of the Darkness Walk or the AFSP Michigan Chapter. Gotcha. Is there anything we didn't hit on that you wanted to make sure we talked about? Um, if people are interested in getting involved, I would certainly recommend, um, check us out. Yeah, there's definitely time to do that. We need volunteers for the day of the walk. Um, and then we're also looking for people who would be interested in helping plan the walk and join the committee as well. Um, our committee has gone up and down over the, over the years. So it would be really nice to have some fresh faces, um, and new ideas to help continue to grow the walk. Definitely. Very good. Liz Baker, the chair or co-chair of the uh, Lansing out of darkness walk. Thank you so much for doing everything you do in our community and being a part of uh, the combo. Yeah. Thank you for having me. You've been listening to Community Combos, a program from LCC Connect with conversations about what's happening in our community. To listen to this episode on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org or find us on your favorite podcast platform. If you or someone you know would like to be a guest on Community Combos, email us lcc-connect at lcc.edu. And thanks for joining the combo. Featuring the faculty, staff, students, and others that help to make Lansing's premier college what it is today. LCC Connect, Mid-Michigan's connection to Lansing Community College. To find out more about our featured programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. K-12 Operations at Lansing Community College has been a proud collaborator of the Mason Promise Scholarship since 2016. The Mason Promise Scholarship is a community organization of volunteers that guarantees funding for two years of Lansing Community College education to selected Mason Public School students. These selected students are chosen by the Mason Public Schools at the end of the fifth grade and then become a Mason Promise Scholarship through an induction ceremony. Over the course of the next six years, these students receive mentoring and support as well as introduction to career possibilities through the Pathway Program. For more information on the Mason Promise Scholarship at LCC, please visit lcc.edu slash hope. In 1911, Thomas and Emily Dalton looked with compassion at their community. They didn't have much money, but they dedicated themselves to meeting physical and spiritual needs by creating the City Rescue Mission of Lansing. For over 100 years, through the Great Depression and several recessions, through world wars and cold wars, the mission continues to work in Michigan's capital area, seeing the need and meeting the need. 
A lot has changed in the past century, but the power of compassion in action will never change. A small act of kindness can impact our entire community. We see it reflected every day in the progress made by women and men working to transition out of homelessness and into independence. They can do it because of the support of our fellow rescuers. Together, we provide food, shelter, and hope to hundreds of people in need. For more information on the City Rescue Mission of Lansing, visit BeARescuer.org. On the success scenario, we meet and hear from current LCC students who face adversity, why they chose LCC, and how they turn their situation into a successful one. Definitely now after second semester, my self-confidence is up there. I can do this and I can do this well. Age has nothing to do with it. Like I told you before, I have, the, I have notes from that first meeting and it was, take your age out of it. You deserve to be here. You belong here. I'm Dustin Abrego. The Success Scenario is a program dedicated to inspiring students towards a path of success. You can listen to this episode and past episodes anytime online at lccconnect.org. The Modern Warehousing Program through the Job Training Center at Lansing Community College is an industry-led program that prepares individuals for frontline material handling and supply chain logistic positions in medical centers, fulfillment centers, warehouses, and factories. Those who complete this program can earn multiple certifications. Visit lcc.edu slash jtctraining for more information. LCC. Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision. It's time for Stars on Sports, a podcast radio show dedicated to sharing stories about our athletic program at Lansing Community College. LCC Athletics has a strong tradition. 23 national championship wins. Over 170 All-Americans. 19 MCCAA All-Sports Trophies. Stars on Sports will introduce you to individuals that have contributed to our program's success and give you the backstory on what it takes to develop it. We'll also dive into and break down the topics and issues facing athletic departments across the nation and right here at LCC. This is Stars on Sports. Hello and welcome to another episode of Stars on Sports. I am joined by our assistant AD and baseball coach Stephen Cutter. And Stephen, today as we record this podcast, there's a, a number of things going on in the educational athletic world. So I hope we can touch on, on both of them or at least dive deep into either one of them. And it's conference realignment. And with conference realignment, it's the beginning of uh, academic year. But as we record this, we have started you know practices too. So it's very exciting, both of those things, and, and it's very they're both polarizing to people, so it, it brings out a lot of discussion, and it's amazing the, the landscape in both of those of, you know, beginning of the year, and, you know, people usually have a little break and, and are excited, and there's a lot of hope out there, but the breaks are different now. Do student athletes get a really a break to, to re-energize and, and renew themselves for the upcoming year? I think they might have... Um, 
minimized, you know, or a little less of a schedule, but they're still, you know, pretty active, you know, championships are won in the off season. And, you know, that ties into the, you know, the hot topic of a conference realignment out there, how at the highest level of, of college sports, you know, conferences are blowing up and teams that are on the West coast are becoming going to be members of the Atlantic coast conference. And, you know, we've even seen it in our conference, you know, we've had some expansion, you know, the most expansion we've had in the last couple of years, and it's impacted our conference regarding how you split it up and, and the travel and the competition and, and the rivals. So, you know, they, they go hand in hand, but they're different. But in the end, it's just an exciting time of year to, to you know, the, the kick off the year. And, and again, nothing with conference realignment would go into effect at the large level until next year. But it's a it's a topic. I mean, that's who you play. That's, you know, you know, there's big money involved. There, there's travel involved. And and sometimes we lose focus of the best for the student athlete. So um, what are your thoughts on either one of those? And maybe that'll help what direction, you know, this conversation. Well, I think soup, it's basically super conferences is what's forming throughout the athletic landscape. Have you, you've been in the high school level for a long time. Did you see that kind of working that way as well at the high school level? Yes. Um, my last four or five years or even longer at the high school level, it was a significant impact. And I started 25 years ago when you just stayed in your league. I called it, it became a free agent society. You know, you used to just try to get better and compete in your league and win. But in the end of that career, it was very fluid and it changed rapidly. And there were a number of factors. Some would argue um, football led to a lot of that, but I think it was much more than that. And at the high school level, you know, a, a geography has a lot more um, play in that plus your enrollment. And that was, I thought, one of the significant changes. And even I think you're seeing that the, that impacting colleges too, where high, some high schools grew and many shrunk. So that changed if they could be competitive or not in, in that particular league. So it was a huge topic at the high school level the last five to 10 years. And, you know, hard feelings, um, difficult decisions, you know, you didn't try and kick somebody out, but they're the magic number you wanted to get to for your schedules. Um, and it, it, it didn't have much to do with money like it does at, at the college level and even at the higher level than us. I mean, you're talking $80 million for this new Big Ten contract for, for media rights. Um, but yeah, it, it, it's at all levels. Then, you know, you don't see it as much at the community college level because it, it, I think geography is a big part of that. And, it, it, you know, you stay local and I haven't seen much movement between, you know, the Michigan and maybe the Illinois. But it's more if you change divisions, you'd have to go out and find teams that are are in that particular division. If you moved up to Division One or moved down to Division Three, like at our last meeting in the MCCAA, um, division three schools might have to play schools from Texas, I believe in their region tournament, because that's the closest conference with, you know, the sport offering. So there's a number of factors that go in the league realignment, such as geography, competition, opportunities, even facilities. Now, you know, in, in the premier league soccer, there's teams that you get relegated and such. And there's a team that wasn't expected to move up, but their stadium's too small for the requirements. So even a thing like facilities can impact like if you're a D1, you have enough seating that meet the requirements for attendance. But in the end, it's student athlete welfare and money. 
it's crazy. It, it, it's evolving. You're right. It's becoming super conferences. Names could be changed. Conferences that are over 100 years could lose their name. Um, rivalries could be changed. Um, it, it impacts each sport differently, but it's going to impact every sport. Um, and, and again, that's you know a lot of uncertainty, which you know we talked about surprises before in, the, in our podcast in the past, but there's a lot of uncertainty heading into the school year, but there's a lot of hope too. And, and hope is, is exciting and it's contagious. And, you know, like as we talk, I'm not a Lions fan, but there's a lot of talk about how good the Lions are going to be this year. And, it, and it's crazy. Really isn't different from any other year. <laughs> but I mean, you hit on geography a little bit at the high school level. Geography for these conferences is, is relatively important at the college level. That was also a thing. But now geography is kind of out the window. And as with most things, you see a trickle down effect. You know, it goes from whether it's professional to college to, you know, high school. What would it be like for our conference that's that's growing immensely that we all of a sudden we join the Mississippi Association of Community College um, conference in Mississippi and now all of a sudden they're with us because colleges are flying across the country or will be extensively flying you know super long distances to play these games or matches well it's very interesting because when you look at conference makeup geography was the main category like the big 10 it was all midwest schools the mccaa it was all michigan you know now we have some indiana schools and um you know no high school but we compete with them in the regionals but geography was that main factor uh money and technology have probably changed that you know planes are much more accessible uh busing you know is more convenient but it still costs so that's where you got to find a way when there's travel involved time and money are important right. factors and, and they can be costly you know teams that play one time a week is a different impact than teams that play three or four times a week in in that travel and you can get creative with scheduling and, and do partner schools or you know make it a multi-contest trip but you know, geography does seem to go out the window and it could trickle, it trickled down to the high school that, you know, they're, they're still a core geography, but it's branched out in some areas. Um, at our level, yeah, depending on even competition as we're seeing it, our programs are stronger, teams might not play us, or, you know, you might become too good for your league. And I've seen that, you know, that they, you know, I don't see, foresee that happening in, in our conference, but there are many factors that play into that, that travel has seemed to be moved down the list on what's important for conference alignment at all levels. So, um, very interesting. It'll be very interesting to Powell and how it does impact our, our level. Um, it hasn't impacted the, you know, the, the D3 or NAI level much. It had impacted D2 level, I mm -hmm. believe. So it's yes. not just D1 we're talking. And, you know, size of schools also impact that. Sport offerings is another thing. I mean, you got to probably go somewhere where you can play schools. You know, like even when you add a sport, you want to know who you're going to schedule and play with. But um, just a lot of factors, but it, 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 it's very intriguing what's happening and how it will trickle down to other levels because back to your travel arrangements, once you see other people able to do it, that makes you think you can do it too. Like, well, if UCLA can make it all the way to East Lansing, why can't we make it to uh, Mississippi? And 
it's crazy. You know, when you look at Michigan, like we've added, we added Bay out of Escanaba and that's a six hour drive. How many other colleges in Ohio or Indiana or Illinois are just as close, you know? Right. So, you know, it, you know, that's the interesting thing about our state that our, our, uh, the high school association always alluded that you're closer to some parts in North Carolina than you are all the way to the Western end of the, right. the, the UP. And you got, you know, snow up there and you know sunshine down on the southeast corner and you again then you throw in enrollment numbers so just many variables and it's just really separating the the haves and have-nots in college sports is is what's happening because if you're part of a conference and you start having realignment teams start leaving for other conferences and you might not be able to have the fun. You might not currently have the funding to be able to do what those other teams are doing. You're kind of left holding the bag, which is the same thing that's happening on the, on the West Coast right now with some teams. And then they have to figure out where they're going to go because the conference isn't going to exist anymore. And I think that's happened in, in college sports for for a while. And it's just a little more prominent now. And, and like you said, you're seeing super conferences and. It's uh, been a long-standing, you know, Power Five conferences, and and I think that number is probably going to go down by at least one. Yeah, interesting because you know they call it Power Five; they'll have to change yeah. that number, and and it's difficult for college departments. You know, even though the independent schools are, you try and be loyal, and and almost loyalty has gone out the window in some of these things, and and people get burned by trying to stay true to their current conference, and and knowing when to jump into that next conference or being left out. It's we found out some schools have been, and and geography still plays a role in it. You know, like being at Lansing and being centrally low located you know our current division makeup we don't even we're not in a division with our three closest schools but we're still pretty makes, close to the, the league we yeah. move so geography still plays into it like being on the west coast or east coast you're, you're definitely traveling one way or the other where if you're more centrally located it, it's more favorable and it, it you know i saw an article where like in the nfl the cincinnati Bengals are traveling the least in the NFL in the Seattle Seahawks are traveling like three times as much as they mm-hmm. are and over different time zones. And, you know, you the see, Mariners do the same thing. Yeah. And so, you, but yeah. again, it's where they're located and you're seeing game played over internationally. I mean, Michigan played a basketball game last year in London, you know, the highest level they're playing games in, in Mexico in London and Canada and trying to get teamed there. Um, so geography will always be a part of it, but it just seems to be going down the list and and what decides, you know, what alliance or what enrollment that is. And, you know, where the academics fit into that. I don't know. I mean, becomes, tough decisions becomes a lot harder when you're the further that you're traveling. It's just becomes a lot harder on the academic side because you're doing things on a plane or on a bus or in a terminal or you know, all these different places that are definitely unique in their own ways. So it, it's more of a challenge. And and if, if you're on a bus or, or you're on a plane, the hours that you're getting back are, are not normal by any stretch. And so then, you know, you you have student athletes choosing sleep or, or to get their work done. And, and they, they, most of them really make the the best choice possible at the time, which is to get their work done, but then they're sacrificing their sleep, which then affects their athletic performance. So, so it's, it's really a, a big picture spiral and you have to try to, 
figure all that out with time management and what's best at the time. Well, and I think it goes back to your point of the haves and have nots because, you know, one of the neat things I've learned over the last couple of months from another podcast is your resources need to meet your expectations. And for those highest levels, they have the resources mm-hmm. to help student athletes. Sure. They have professors or tutors or other academic help when they travel. But as you go down levels, those resources aren't as economical or easy to obtain that it does have a domino effect on the student athlete and their performance and their academic success. And in the end, it's it's almost counterproductive. And that's, you know, that's where I struggle with this conference realignment. Like we're doing it for money and TV, but that $80 million also can help benefit, you know, many more sports like you know i saw an article sure. it'll help maybe keep coaches at a higher salary it will help um build facilities for some of those programs that haven't our facilities are older so it, it's like pulling the rope at both ends and and where is it going to break and where is it end and it's not ending it, it, and even with these super conferences it, there's still some ironing out to do and seeing where where people land and the same with us you know we're one year into adding three northern schools that at some time i think the mcca need to reflect and see if three bit divisions the best when when we were making that realignment issue it was it was very difficult and there were a couple of schools mad that they got pulled into the northern conference and we were close to those you know and we you know argued our case of why different schools should and you learn you know as time goes on you learn to adjust and it becomes the normal but those are difficult conversations and it, it's tough on your again those schools that got pulled in the no conference the ones that are farthest south it's more time more travel more money where the schools that are up north that are closer together it, it's impacted it less and mm-hmm. even us that can we go up there and play them for non-conference and such? So it's definitely a domino effect, but I also think it can, can impact the, uh, you know, the haves and the have nots. And, you know, in the end people focus on winning and, you know, how how are they going to win and, and what sports are they going to win in? And, you know, that, you know, I argued that was part of the high school alignment issues. If you weren't succeeding, instead of trying to get better, you went and bound a league that you could succeed in. Um, I don't see that as much at the high college level, but you know, you, you do. I mean, because you look at some of the highest levels, if you're not succeeding, you're trying to find a, a way to be successful. Or you're the Lions and you just, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Next hey, year. there's hope. No, year. this could, this year might be that next year with I all, hope the, so. all the, all the, so. and that, you know, and again, that's back to our original conversation about hope and the starting of the year, you're getting ready to start there. There, I mean, and you didn't, I mean, you were working as hard as you ever were this summer. So, you know, I, I don't see where you got that downtime or, or breaks, but no do you feel no. energized because of the new season or is it just another day to you? Um, no such thing as just another day. So at least for me, it's mm-hmm. always energized to be able to do what we do. And mm-hmm. um, super blessed to be able to have all the things that we have and all the connections and the relationships in our college and everything else. So it's never uh, just an- another day. Um, my Fridays look the same as my Mondays do. And there's there's no change. I'm, I'm not dreading Sunday night and, um, you know, celebrating on Friday. So it's it, we're, we're very fortunate. 
But as a new season starts, I mean, it, you know, one person can, you know, whether it's a coach or mm-hmm. a student athlete yeah. can make a significant change Certainly. in that team. So is there anything you pre- prepare differently as you head into that first practice or meeting or um, I know you, you know, again, it starts up front by developing relationships with yeah. your student athletes and incoming recruits. So you have a good gauge of what your team already looks like. But is there anything like just on your mind or that, you know, do you get more butterflies for that first day or, you know, nope, it's just, you know. Yeah, not so much. I, the relationships are built, but they're not built on the first day and they're built over a, a long period of time. So the team will change dramatically. It's going to change, you know, as we get going and then there's playing once that competition and playing time get involved in January and February, then the team will change once again. But it's it's really about just setting the standard and setting the tone of the program, showing um, all the th- great things that have been done, and then also showing all the great things that can be done moving forward. So it, it's an exciting time of year. Most of the student athletes come in and they're they're fairly selfish and and that's really normal but they're concerned about themselves they want to know how they fit into a team they want they want to know if, if they're going to play they want to you know they're comparing themselves to their other teammates so when they come into a program the first day of practice it's it's a pretty selfish thing and you really start working through a whole process of teaching them how to be selfless and embrace their team and play for each other and and that kind of stuff. And that doesn't happen in a speech. It doesn't happen on a banner on a wall or or print on a t-shirt, but it's through that process. And so probably the most exciting piece of being able to start a season is to start those processes moving forward. And then the most gratifying thing is when it's all said and done, look at how those processes worked out to the results and what a good point in that you know for the fans it is exciting for those that are playing there's a there's apprehension there's uncertainty there's there's stress and and know that that's at every level at the high school level you know getting cut at the college level fitting in knowing if your your role is what you thought when you recruited in at the professional level it's a job and you know there's only so many people that make that roster so very interesting point that as the fans we're all excited and thinking this is the year for our team and the same for me as an administrator I'm all excited about you know this year we're going to have that we're going to be better in everything than we were last year and we're going to win you know in the classroom we're going to have a better GPA and in the on the court and the field we're going to finish higher than we did last year but you know for student athletes it's not that I mean there's hope and excitement there because I think they want to be a part of what that success has been in the past but you're right individually there's a lot going on and you know that's a a thing I've learned that you know that those transitions um in sport in in life you know going from middle school to high school going from high school to college you know and and they're, they're tough on 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 young adults and, and, and student athletes that sometimes that does get lost this time of year. So, so good point, but it's still exciting. I think we're going to have a great year in our athletic program. Um, it'll be interesting to see where conference re- realignment ends up with us, but it's definitely a, a hot topic and not done at the highest levels of, of college sports. So again, looking forward to a great year and go stars. Stars on Sports is recorded live at the WLNZ Studios. Engineering and production assistance are provided by Didalian Lowry. You can listen to this episode and other episodes of Stars on Sports on demand at lccconnect.org. To find more information about our athletic program, visit lccstars.com. Thanks for listening. Go Stars!
This is WLNZ Lansing. You're listening to LCC Connect, a weekly program that features the voices, vibes, and vision of Lansing Community College. To find out more about LCC Connect programs or to listen on demand, visit us at lccconnect.org. LCC Connect. Voices. Vibes. Vision.